Well, if you have a Bible, it'd be helpful for you to keep Proverbs 3, verses 13 to 35 open as we make our way through it this evening, thinking tonight about the blessings of wisdom, the blessings of wisdom. Christians are missing out. What a bunch of wet blankets and party poopers. What's the harm in living however you like as long as you aren't hurting anybody else? Even if you haven't had people say those exact words to you, it's likely what many of your non-Christian friends and family believe and think, even if they don't say it to your face. It's probably especially what the friends and peers of children and young adults believe. Christians are just really out to spoil people's fun. They wouldn't know a good time if it hit them in the face. And really it comes down to the idea that people want freedom. They want to be free to do what they please. And they see the Bible and those who believe in the Bible as a hindrance to that freedom and a, a threat to that freedom. And yet it is interesting as the decline of our secular, post-Christian, Western culture continues. It's interesting to see where so-called freedom has taken us. Uh, Michael Schellenberger is an American journalist and author. He's written on various aspects of uh, politics and has a particular interest in the debate on climate change. Uh, he's not a Christian as far as I'm aware. He's someone, in fact, who would have described himself for most of his life as a liberal. But he has joined a growing number of liberals, or maybe they're ex-liberals now, uh, concerned about what has happened in the West in the name of so-called freedom. Schellenberger, a few years ago, he wrote a book called San Francisco, which, as the name suggests, is all about the Californian city of San Francisco. Uh, for many years, a thriving city, world-famous Golden Gate Bridge, situated on a gorgeous stretch of California coastline. Some of my family have actually cycled across that bridge. Maybe some of you have as well. Beautiful part of the world. But in the 2010s, it was in a city that would proudly call itself one of the rainbow flag capitals of the world. Homelessness reached record levels. Drug use became and likely remains rampant with whole portions of the city just given over to open use of, of needles and, and dangerous drugs. Public parks and walkways are just full of used needles. Crime rates skyrocketed whilst law enforcement vanished. Whole neighborhoods of this once thriving city have become ghost towns. Even complaints about human waste on public streets have reached record levels. And, and, and Schellenberger has written about this and tried to pinpoint some of the problems and where things have gone wrong to lead one of the world's great cities to look and sound and smell like this. One commentator says, Schellenberger has now realized that freedom is a paradox. Without the moral rules that constrain liberty, the outcome isn't freedom, but selfishness, anarchy, and harm. Another way to say it is that what the world describes as freedom is often what the Bible describes as foolishness. And by contrast, the book of Proverbs presents us with wisdom. And yes, it includes things that we should not do, Decisions that we shouldn't, paths that we should not take. But it shows us over and over again that the way of wisdom and, and the guardrails that God's wisdom provides for us 
is actually the way of blessing, that the constraints of wisdom actually lead to true freedom and true life. I want to think, first of all, with you from this passage we read earlier this evening, I want to think about the preciousness of wisdom. The preciousness of wisdom. This is really looking at verses 13 to 20. If you look at verse 13, first of all, Proverbs 3, 13. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit better than gold. The idea here is of finding something that others haven't. Something that is worth more than anyone could imagine getting their hands on. Maybe some of you have read Roald Dahl's famous book, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And you remember the moment when Charlie manages to buy a chocolate bar <coughs> he peels back the, the wrapper with his trembling fingers and he sees the glint of the golden ticket inside. And suddenly this object that looks so ordinary, this chocolate bar of which there are hundreds of thousands in the world, suddenly it is worth more to Charlie than anything else. It's going to open up an opportunity and possibilities for him that he could never have had any other way. The writer of Proverbs says wisdom is like that. It may be packaged, if you like, in an ordinary way as far as the world is concerned. It may be completely unremarkable as far as the world is concerned. But wisdom is seeing God's word for what it is, like the gleam of gold that it is in a world of ordinariness. Riches, blessing come from wisdom. Look at verse 15. She is more precious than jewels. Nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness. As we've seen already in the book, wisdom is often pictured for us. It's pictured again here as a woman holding out good things to give to people who ask for them. And notice here where the particular gifts are. Long life is in her right hand. The right hand being a symbol of primacy and power uh, and importance in the Bible. No offense to all you lefties here this evening. Um, and in, in her left hand then are riches and honor. So primarily, most importantly, wisdom gives life. The riches of wisdom lead to life. Uh, and then secondarily, honor and, and, and riches follow behind it. Notice verse 17, all her paths are peace. All her paths are peace. As we've mentioned before, this word peace, it's not just the absence of conflict. We were praying about the, uh, the, uh, the government being reformed in Northern Ireland. Someone was praying in our prayer meeting and giving thanks for the relative peace that we enjoy. And that's the right way to describe it, that we have relative peace in our part of the world. We don't have Whole peace, if I can put it that way. Peace in the Bible, as Alec Matier, one helpful commentator says, it includes everything God gives for human well-being in all areas of life. It's about the enjoyment and blessing of right relationships with God, with neighbor, with oneself, and with one's environment. Right relation, that's what peace is. Right relationships with God, with neighbor, with oneself, and with one's environment. How much of that peace do we see in the world around us, friends? The world that has been so eagerly pursuing so-called freedom. 
Has sexual freedom led to people feeling a sense of wholeness, of relationships being healthy between neighbors and even within individuals themselves? Has freedom to eat and drink and enjoy oneself led to a greater or lesser sense of peace in cultures like San Francisco or London or Belfast? Some of the most miserable people in the world today are the people who have the most and have tried the most and pushed the limits the most. The people who have consumed and fornicated and freedomed their way into oblivion in Europe or North America. Our world is to be enjoyed. Food and drink and pleasure and riches, they're to be enjoyed, but not as ends in themselves, only as a result of enjoying peace with God and walking in the wisdom that God provides. In fact, the writer here in Proverbs goes on to tell us that wisely pursuing, wisely pursuing the good things of the world It's been built into the very fabric of creation itself by God. Look at verse 19. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding he established the heavens. By his knowledge the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. So the picture here now of wisdom changes. No longer is wisdom pictured here as a woman, as a person, but it's pictured here as an instrument that God uses. It's a tool in the hands of the Lord. Wisdom was God's instrument for creating the world, the writer says. What he's saying is that wisdom, design, order, beauty is built into the very fabric of the universe that God has created. And and Genesis shows us that. Remember God said to Adam and Eve, fill the earth and subdue it. And Genesis 2 describes how the four rivers uh, flowed out of Eden and uh, how in certain regions you could find gold and in certain regions you could find other materials. The world was designed by God to be explored, to be cultivated, to be enjoyed. God made our world full of all the resources we need for long life and peace and riches and honor. The problem, of course, is that sin came into our world as well and came into us and corrupted our desires so that we chase after all those things that are only resources, that are only gifts to be enjoyed as long as we're in right relationship with the giver of good gifts, that those things become an end in themselves. And our life becomes a pursuit of those things and nothing else. In a culture that calls us to use and abuse what God has made, wisdom calls to us and says, long life and peace and wholeness and joy is found in fearing the Lord and in honoring him first and foremost. Notice verse 18. She, that is wisdom, is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. Remember there were the two trees in Eden. There was the tree of life and there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge and their way to the tree of life then is cut off And they're banished from the tree of life. And the question is, is there any way for human beings ever to enjoy the tree of life ever again? And right at the end of our Bibles, as we saw a few months ago in Revelation 22 verse 2, the tree of life appears again in paradise, in the new heavens and the new earth. The the leaves of the tree, we're told in Revelation 22, 
are for the healing of the nations. What it's saying there is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is, is available. It's for, our, it's for our good, it's for our healing, it's for our blessing, and it's our path to life. Jesus said in John 10 verse 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Have it abundantly. Jesus didn't come to ruin our fun. Jesus didn't come to uh, restrain us and remove us from things that would be good for us to enjoy. He came that we would have life and have it abundantly. Have it to the full. That we would have true peace. That we would have true riches. That we would have true joy. It's to be found in Christ, friends. He is, if you like, symbolically that tree of life available to us by faith. He is true riches. He is true blessing. Life is to be found in him. And so although the gospel of Jesus Christ might appear ordinary to the world, as you unfold and as you receive it, it's like that glint of gold inside the chocolate bar wrapping. The opportunities the blessings, the preciousness of life in Christ. Do you treasure wisdom? Do you live according to true wisdom? Is Christ more precious to you than anything else? The preciousness of wisdom. Secondly, in verses 21 to 26, we see the protection of wisdom. The protection of wisdom. Look at verses 21 to 23. <clears throat> My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, and they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Then you will walk on your way securely, and your foot will not stumble. Notice that commandment, do not lose sight of these. Again, remember, we have here a father instructing his son. And the wise father knows that although he is giving all the wisdom he can to his son, all the instructions he can, that his son is out in a world full of attractions, full of pressures, full of temptations. And it's entirely possible for his son to take his eye off the things that his father has been telling him, to forget the things his father has been telling him. And so he urges his son, do not lose sight of these. And we have again in verse 22, as we saw a few weeks ago, the language of binding wisdom around your neck, we thought about how some of the pious Israelites and Jewish people, they would literally do this. They would take a little portion of scripture, they would put it in a box, they would tie it around their neck or on their wrist. He's saying, keep wisdom close. Don't forget it. Put it somewhere where it'll be, if you like, knocking against you and weighing you down and keeping your eyes fixed forward. Look at verse 24. If you do this, if you keep wisdom close, he's saying in verse 24, then if you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes, for the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Again, there's overlap there, isn't there, with some of our favorite Psalms. That the Lord who keeps you is your shade. The Lord's at your right hand. and He will not allow your foot to stumble. But notice the contrast here between those who have wisdom and who keep it and who live under its protection and the contrast with those who don't. In verse 24, those who have wisdom can lie down and sleep. 
The implication is that those who act foolishly will be tossing and turning in fear. Verse 25, when disaster comes to the wicked, they're ruined. They're broken down. And meanwhile, verse 26, when disaster comes, the wise trust in the Lord. And they don't stumble. They don't panic. There's a security. There's a protection that comes from living wisely. According, comes from living with fear for and trust in the Lord. And I've said before, none of this is promising us an easy life. Proverbs is not a book of promises. It's a book of general observations and wisdom. It's not saying that all of these things lead to a life free of hardship, but it's saying that in the midst of hardship, trust in the Lord's goodness and sovereignty will guide us and protect us. If we try to make it practical, imagine a young person invited on a night out with friends and they know the kinds of things that are planned by these particular friends. Underage drinking, immoral behavior, including perhaps sexual immorality. Maybe the plan is to meet in one particular place, but probably everyone knows that you're going to end up in all kinds of other places as the night goes on. And the pressure comes to go along with it. Big great crack. Everyone's going. Everyone's going. So everyone will be talking about it for days afterwards, and you wouldn't want to miss out on that. It's just a bit of fun. But the parents have said no. The young person has some options. They could go and not tell their parents, and everything might be fine. They don't take a drink. No one gets in trouble. There's no predatory behavior. They don't fall into sexual sin or drunkenness. They could go and there'd be no harm done. But they will go home that night having dishonored their parents, having disobeyed their parents, and their sleep will not be sweet because they've sinned against their mother and father. And that's to say nothing of how they will sleep or not sleep if things really do go wrong. Or take the example of an older person, man or a woman, whose colleagues or friends invite them into some kind of new investment scheme, some sure thing that they've come across. Won't do any harm, sure. You, you need to be doing something with your money. This is a guaranteed winner. And so for the sake of the thrill and the sense of being in the right and being able to forecast these things, without consulting his spouse, without praying about whether this is something he really needs to do, he goes ahead and commits money to this thing. And then suddenly word comes through, the sure thing isn't so sure after all. The money that he had, he's now lost. Or again, look at it on a national scale. Places like, as I mentioned, San Francisco or even other parts, cities in our own nation as well, where we're seeing the ruin of the wicked. We are watching the Western world crumble in front of us in some cases. And people in the, in the face of the ruin increasingly have no hope, no confidence in governments, no confidence in emergency services or in social cohesion. Everything's so expensive. Everything's declining. And people are in panic at the ruin that we see around us. But even then, the Christian can have confidence because our confidence was never in the things of this world. Our confidence is in the kingdom that will never perish, the king who always reigns, the kingdom that will last forever, the Lord Jesus Christ. And wisdom says, don't lose sight of that in the midst of all the upheaval that you see around you. 
You remember what happened to Peter who did at least have faith to get out of the boat and walk toward Christ on the stormy waters of Galilee. It's amazing that he did that. But then what happened? Matthew 14, 30, when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. It's when he lost sight of wisdom. Jesus, his confidence, Jesus, his trust and protection, when he looked at disaster and difficulty, that he began to sink. There's wisdom, there's, there, there's protection to be found rather in wisdom. Now, of course, tossing and turning at night is not necessarily a sign that you've done something sinful. Some of you, I know, struggle to sleep and it's not because you're guilty of a night out that you shouldn't have taken or anything like that. And it's not a sin to make wise investments with your money. And it's natural to some extent to feel some worry and anxiety when we see the state that our world is in today. But in the midst of those things, friends, we must not lose sight of wisdom. Have we taken our eyes off the protection, the comfort, the peace that Jesus Christ can offer in the midst of those testing situations? The fear of the Lord, the wisdom of godly living friends, it isn't, a guarant again, a guarantee of 24-7 physical or financial prosperity, but quite often it does give us a measure of protection in those scenarios. There's a lot that a Christian will be spared from. There's a lot of regret a Christian won't have and a lot of contentment that a Christian will have by keeping sight of wisdom. Think of another incident in Peter's life recorded for us in Acts chapter 12 when one of the Herods had thrown him in prison for preaching the gospel. Shortly before that, James had been executed. Peter didn't know what was going to happen the next day. And that night we're told he was in his prison cell, Acts 12, verse 6, sleeping between two soldiers. Sleeping. Chained to soldiers, possibly sitting on death row. The angel who came to rescue him had to thump him on the arm to wake him up. He was sleeping so soundly. The safest place to be is in the center of the will of God, living according to the wisdom of God, even if that means that you're in prison. That's where you find rest and confidence and you can sleep and lie down knowing that you've wisely lived in obedience to your Savior, whether it leads to immediate blessing or whether it leads to immediate trial. His protection is upon your soul. The preciousness of wisdom, the protection of wisdom. Thirdly, the practical generosity of wisdom. The practical generosity of wisdom. And this is verses 27 to 35. Um, again, we're not going to be able to go into all these verses in detail, but if you look especially at verse 27, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again. Tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. I mentioned a few weeks ago, there's a, a close connection between the book of Proverbs and the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, and these verses 27 to 35 are a very clear example of that. All of the commands that the father gives his son here are very closely and clearly based on the commands that God gives in the book of Deuteronomy. And really everything that you read there in verses 27 to 35, it can be summarized in that great commandment. Jesus says it's the second greatest commandment. 
Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what verses 27 to 35 are all about. Loving your neighbor as yourself. Going above and beyond for your neighbor. Getting out of your comfort zone for your neighbor. And again, this goes against much of modern Western thinking, which is very much based on pursuing individual freedom. And it's not just the liberals who get this wrong. Conservatives do too. The hyper-individual conservative mindset says we just need to get the government off our backs, just need to get everybody off our backs, and we just need freedom to do our own thing. That's not what Proverbs says. Look at verse 27. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Those words there, those to whom it is due, literally the word there is from the owners, from those to whom, to whom it is owed. Christian, the Bible tells us that we owe certain people certain things. Not necessarily financially, although certainly our following of Christ and our following the ways of wisdom does have an impact on our finances, but in many other ways as well. When we're able to do good for someone, the Bible says we're to do good. And we're to do it gladly, and we're to do it joyfully, and we're to do it before we're asked to do it. Think of how this verse, Proverbs 3.27, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Think of how it fits with one of Jesus' best-known pieces of teaching, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Man who was under no legal obligation to help the neighbor he saw beaten and lying on the roadside. A man who actually, if he wanted, could have come up with reasons to go nowhere near him. But who was able to do something to help him. And so he did do good to help him. Did not withhold good from him. That's the Christ-like love that is to mark our lives. Not a stingy, begrudging, okay, I'll do it because, uh, because I have to or I'll do it as quick as I can, with as little inconvenience to me as I can, but a love that does not withhold whatever good we can do for others. Or listen to what Paul says. We read these words at the AGM on Friday night, Romans twelve ten. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. And he goes on, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. You hear how proactive Paul says we're to be there. Seek to do it. Don't just wait till you're asked to do it. Don't withhold good when you have good to give and good to do. We thought at the beginning this evening about our world's pursuit of freedom. The favorite question of our culture is, sure, what harm am I doing? Proverbs 3.27 gives us a different question to ask. What good am I withholding? As one preacher says, it's a negative that demands a positive. What do I have that I could give? And this is where wisdom becomes intensely practical. Do you have words to give? Maybe words to write, maybe words of sympathy to give that you could write on a card to someone, or words of encouragement that you could write on a card or in a text to someone. Cards better, though. 
shows more thought and care? Do you have encouragement to give? Could you provide a meal for someone who has a, a lot to juggle just recently? Could you take time? Do you have time to give to meet someone who's maybe burdened down by ill health or difficult circumstances, to talk to them, to pray with them, maybe just read a little portion of God's word with them? That's good that we should not withhold. Is there something that you owe to the government in terms of taxes or loans or whatever else it may be? Christian, the Bible says, do not withhold good when it is in your power to do it. We live in an insular, self-isolating, self-excusing culture. We rush out in the morning. We rush home at night. Yes, we have a lot of legitimate concerns and burdens and responsibilities upon us. But often our attitude is, let's spare ourselves as much as possible from having to cross paths with anybody else who's going to waylay us or need something from us. And that attitude just does not fit with the law of God, which says, do not withhold good. When it is in your power to do it, literally the word for power there is hand. We don't think of ourselves as powerful people, do we? We've watched them all making their way back up the hill yesterday into the, the corridors of power. And our world looks at places like that and says, that's where the power lies. Just the, the small groups of people with big jobs and big responsibilities. Bible says, no, that you have power in your hands. There's good that you can give to others as well. We're not to make so little of the little things. Inviting someone for a coffee, providing a meal for a family, offering comfort to someone who's struggling. Jesus says, as often as you did it to the least of these, you did it for me. And by the way, he says those words in the context of the rewards that the righteous will receive at the final judgment when he returns. Notice how that tallies with what we see here at the end of Proverbs 3, verses 34 and 35. Towards the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor or grace. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. There is reward, there is honor coming for those who lived a life of wise, practical generosity, who did not withhold good from those to whom it was due. Again, just to tally it up with some of what we find in the New Testament, Paul says in Romans 13, 7, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Owe no one anything, Paul says, except to do them good. And what's the greatest good that a Christian can do for, for someone? It's what we considered this morning. It's to tell them the good news of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, the forgiveness that he offers. Charles Bridges in his commentary on Proverbs says, if we have no legal debt to any, we have a gospel debt to all. Even if there's nothing in your life, you can say, I don't owe anyone a penny. Is there someone to whom we owe sharing the good news of Jesus Christ? We might get more opportunities to do that if we're doing some of the other sorts of things I mentioned, just the, what we call the small things. Taking time to speak to someone, to ask them how they are, 
to show an interest to, to not withhold good. In a world that loves to ask, what harm am I doing anybody? We need to learn to ask ourselves instead, what good am I withholding from anybody? And in particular, is there anyone from whom I am withholding the good news? Is there anyone in my life who doesn't at least know that I am a Christian? Is there anyone with whom I have an opportunity to say more about what that means? So friends, of course, all of this is embodied in Christ who poured himself out, who never withheld all the good that he had to give. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Jesus Christ is both wisdom and good personified. In Jesus Christ, we see the preciousness of wisdom. Jesus Christ provides us with the protection of wisdom. And in Jesus Christ, we see the practical generosity of wisdom in the most supreme example of all. These are the blessings that wisdom offers that are found chiefly and supremely in Christ. In a world that chases freedom without restraint, even when it's to their destruction, wisdom offers us life and urges us to generously share what we have at every opportunity. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. Amen.